when I eat steak and eggs or something like that, I just don't have a lot of hunger. Dr. Sean Baker is a leading advocate for the carnivore diet. As you get a little bit older in life, you start to realize that health becomes more of a priority. He's also an orthopedic surgeon and a world record holding athlete. His controversial approach to nutrition has helped spark a global movement, challenging conventional dietary beliefs and transforming lives. Don't put your health in somebody else's hands. You need to be empowered to realize that you have a huge, huge impact on your health outcomes and basically your quality of life. Welcome to the Hava podcast. Today, we talk about the pros and cons of a meat-focused diet, including a recent dramatic study on what it can do to cholesterol and heart disease. We talk about what health conditions it can affect, what it does for the environment and for athletic fitness. And also, how does Sean eat in a day? It is, I would say, unusual. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Andres. Appreciate it. It's uh, good, to, good to chat with you again going to be an uh, interesting uh, conversation, I'm sure. I, I would love to just start out with uh, with your sort of background story. You're a, you're a doctor, you're an orthopedic surgeon, uh, and uh, but now you've become one of the biggest advocates in the world for this all-meat uh, carnivore diet. How did this thing happen? How did you get pulled into this? You, you know, like many of us, as you get a little bit older in life, you start to realize that uh, you know, health becomes more of a priority. And I'd been an athlete my whole, my life, all, all, you know, even while I was practicing as a surgeon, I was still a competitive athlete. And, um, I noticed about, uh, I guess in my early forties that I just wasn't as healthy as I wanted to be. I was, uh, uh, probably developing metabolic disease. Uh, I didn't formally test it, but in retrospect, I'm sure I was there. Uh, so I experimented with just a number of diets. Cause I, I, you know, I, was, I already thought I'd maxed out the, the, training aspect because I was a very successful competitive athlete. So I was training, you know, I had plenty of exercise. Uh, so I played with different diets. And at that time, this is back uh, about, uh, I don't know, 13, 14 years ago, uh, the standard recommendations, which they still are, were basically, you know, reduce your fat, um, you know, eat, eat mostly a lot of plants, eat lean cuts of protein. And, and I did that and I did successfully lose weight doing that. I, but I just found that, uh, I just couldn't sustain that to me. It was, I was constantly hungry and, uh, not particularly happy with that particular approach. And so then I kind of went down sort of more of a lower carb, carb rabbit hole. I first started on a paleo diet, did that for a year or two. And then I kind of started being exposed to some of the low carb thought and some of the, you know, the book, popular books that are out there, Gary Taubes is, uh, you know, infamous book, uh, good calories, bad calories was one of the, one of the ones that kind of got me started on this sort of path. Um, low carb, I did a ketogenic diet for a couple of years. Um, and you know, stumbled upon a group of crazy people doing an all meat diet, which I thought at the time was absolutely absurd and crazy. Like kind of everybody thinks it is, uh, and many people still think it is. Uh, but I was open-minded enough to say, let me just try this because I was seeing people talking about, uh, you know, quite, quite good results. And, you know, looking back and as an athlete, you know, looking back historically that there were athletes that predominantly ate meat and were very successful. So I thought it would be, one, it'd be an interesting experiment. And two, I thought it might help me athletically. And so back in 2016, um, I embarked on one month of this crazy all meat diet. It wasn't called the carnivore diet at the time. It was called a zero carb diet. And I, I had a small following on social media on Twitter mostly. And 
Uh, I think I was about 3,000 followers at that point. And, you know, we kind of joked about how it was going to kill me. You know, obviously it was going to kill me. I was going to die of scurvy or of course. have an immediate coronary, you know, coronary or, you know, MI or something, or my colon would fall out from lack of fiber. And curiously, none of that happened. In fact, I felt great. And so I went on to sort of, you know, you know, some people were watching and I, I continued, you know, I went back to my regular sort of ketogenic diet after that and I just didn't feel as good. And I thought, well, you know, I, all things being equal, I prefer to feel better than, than, than not. And so, um, I, you know, somehow talked a hundred people into doing this diet, uh, and we recorded data. This is back in, in early 2017. Um, and hundred people did it for 90 days. Average weight loss was around 13 kilos, eight centimeters off their waist, resting heart rate. Some the weird things we could measure That's for free. resting, huh? resting heart rate went down by eight beats per minute, which I thought was curious. Uh, and then symptomatic, you know, then just basically subjective measures. How do you feel? Gut, gut, mental health, all these things all improve. We actually recorded bowel frequency because that was one of the criticisms. You couldn't have a bowel movement. And it turned out to be on average 1.2 bowel movement per day. You know, it's kind of like people laugh when you say 0.2. It's, you know, obviously it's a statistical <laughs> average. But um, so, yeah, we did it. And then, of course, it, it started to get more noted, uh, notice. Uh, obviously, uh, Joe Rogan had me on his podcast uh, in, at the end of 2017. And then that sort of blew things up a lot, you know, and so then it's been controversial ever since then. And so I've been obviously advocating for this. And as you probably, I mean, anybody who listens to me in more than just a superficial matter knows that I advocate, advocate for this as a therapeutic intervention. I don't say everybody needs to do this. I think there's plenty of ways to get healthy outside of a carnivore diet, but I think it uniquely, you know, fills some roles and, I know we're going to talk about satiety and things like that, probably. But I think, you know, it, it, it can be a very healthy diet for people in certain situations. And there are certain people that I think it uniquely helps better than, than anything else they've tried, which is, which is very interesting. And I know we've had, you know, at least 50 years of, I would call it nutritional dogmas, telling us that particularly red meat was awful for us and we should minimize it and cut back on it. And uh, it's, 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 had a very curious place within the, the modern diet. It's, it's one of those things where, well, there's some healthy parts of it, but we should keep it at a, at a very small amount. And uh, so it's interesting to see how this, how this has been evolving. And, you know, what I've seen on a small scale has now been replicated on a very large scale. I think you, you certainly have noticed that there are a lot of people that have tried this diet and many of them have had very good success for various reasons. And we can get into what you know, might be, maybe it's all about satiety. Maybe it's about something else. I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah. I mean, as everybody listening is, uh, is aware, this is a very controversial approach, of course. And there's been a lot of, uh, well, criticisms or, or fears about, uh, potential health, uh, risks, etc. I, I do think that, uh, from my perspective, it seems you are one of the more sort of grounded and more scientific minded, uh, proponents of this this approach uh, of course you are a practicing physician what what kind of re reactions do you get from your colleagues or you know other people in the healthcare well uh, field? you know it's obviously mixed i mean there's those that have tried it <laughs> which have a very different perspective than those that have not and they look at it superficially and and most you know even even you know i've been i've been promoting this now for i guess 7 years this is my 8th year about i'm about to be in my 8th year doing this I've been promoting it for probably almost as long. And there certainly are a large number of physicians that now sort of accept it as, as a, as a reasonable 
treatment option for for various various things, particularly things like inflammatory bowel disease, which I think it works very well for. Um, and then, of course, there's people that think you know you're going to give everybody's going to get heart disease and die. And I think we, you know, I'm sure you're aware there was a recent study that was just presented by Matt Budoff that uh, you know may start to shift the needle a little bit. Obviously, there's a lot of pushback against that, but um, I think that uh, you know most physicians, as I'm sure you'll recognize, don't even regard nutrition as anything even worth talking about to most of their patients because they, they just feel it generally doesn't work. And I think we've just been giving people the wrong nutritional advice for 50 years. And because it hasn't worked, they just kind of dismiss it, you know, you know, completely that it's a waste of time. Patients can't do it. Um, why bother? Let's just give them the medications and, and you know, or, or they give lip service at best, best or so very sort of minimal advice, which I think, I think, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to use nutrition as medicine, which I think we can, or at least, you know, use that sort of, uh, sort of approach, you have to be, you know, you have to, you have to give them more than a five minute talk. You've got to provide support. You have to provide uh, resources and it takes a lot of work. It really does. It's a lot easier to, to write a prescription and see in six months type of thing, which is how you know, medicine is practiced generally. But, uh, you know, I've gotten a a lot of physicians now that, that, that have experienced this and, um, themselves personally, cause a lot of people, like I, I would have never recommended this to anyone had I not tried it myself personally. And I think a lot of us find that, that the only reason we, we get interested in nutrition is we have this sort of personal epiphany that, wow, wait a minute, I feel really different. This has made a big difference in my own life. And then you start to put the scientific, uh, you know, scrutiny to it and see if it holds up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you, you mentioned a, a very brand new study, and I, I think we'll get to that very soon. Uh, but I would love to just uh, wrap up this sort of uh, your uh, story with it as a doctor. I mean, I, I know you have opinions. You, you work as an orth orthopedic surgeon, um, and you, you mentioned, you know, doctors generally perhaps do not talk all that much about nutrition. I don't know how much nutrition did you have in med school. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on the whole... Uh, the way that modern healthcare works um, when it comes to lifestyle-related diseases? Yeah, I mean, I think it's given lip service. I don't think we really have any sort of, I mean, we. I think most physicians acknowledge that there are people that are sick due to their lifestyle, but they don't really have any really constructive tools which can help combat that. And I think that, you know, the med at least in the United States, I mean, a lot of our medical education is funded by the pharmaceutical industries. I mean, that's just the reality. It's been paid for. And so we've, we've we're, you know, we're kind of taught. I mean, I had the basics of nutrition. I, I learned what pellagra was and scurvy and, you know, uh, you know, things of that nature, beriberi and then certain vitamin deficiencies and a very, very not, rudimentary. Not super, not What's super that? common diseases. Uh, well, stuff you never the... see anymore, right? Exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, so it was, they... you know, it, it, I, but you know, during my orthopedic training, I never, ever, I can, I can't even remember ever reading a textbook or any, any lesson where nutrition was talked about at all. I mean, I mean, there was some superficial sort of reference to, you know, if you have a really poorly, you know, uh, uh, malnourished patient, they're going to do bad surgically with an outcome. You might look at their albumin or something like that, but never any real constructive, like, Hey, if you, if, if, if this sort of diet is carried out for a period of time, these conditions will get better. That's just not taught, or at least wasn't taught to me. And I think that's the experience that most, uh, you know, allopathic physicians have in, in, at least in the United States. And I can't speak for Sweden because, you know, not there, but I, I suspect it's similar. It's uh, very similar. I say, 
But I think that's a very interesting perspective you bring up. Like we as doctors, we get taught about these vitamin deficiency diseases, beriberi, pellagra stuff that uh, scurvy. We'll never see. <laughs> like you said, we never see it. Like if you see it once in your career, you know, that's it. And yet at the same time, at least, you know, for most doctors who work clinically with patients, maybe the majority of patients have nutrition related lifestyle disease that we're not focusing on except by prescribing medications. Is that, you know, that that's the way you, you see know, it? I, you know, Andres is interesting. One of the reasons I chose orthopedics as a specialty is because you know, my experience in primary care was that I saw a lot of frustrated patients and a lot of frustrated doctors. It was basically the doctors say the patients were compliant and the patients felt like they weren't getting better. And I felt that orthopedics would be, well, you know, if somebody comes in with a broken arm or broken leg, I can put a metal rod down there, fix them, and they're out the door. And it, it was it was sort of a, uh, you know, my my early thought was, you know, I, I would just do that and have to, not have to deal with the noncompliance. But what I came to learn as a, as a guy who practiced for, for several decades, um, that most of what I was seeing, even though it was orthopedic, was still lifestyle related. You know, the arthritis, the tendinopathy, the tendonitis the peripheral compression neuropathies, all that in retrospect is responsive and, 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 you know, influenced by lifestyle and nutrition. So, I mean, it's, you can't get away from it. Even, even as a surgical subspecialist, you can't get away from lifestyle. So do you, do you give uh, lifestyle advice to your patients on what kind of reactions you get from your colleagues? Regarding that. Well, I do. I mean, and I'm not actively doing surgery anymore, Andres, because I, I, I went full time to, you know, doing the company I have now. And so, uh, but yes, I, I, that's basically almost exclusively what I talk about at this point is just lifestyle stuff, because it is uh, in my, for me, it's more rewarding to me personally. You know, I, you know, it felt good to, you know, do a knee replacement on somebody or, or replace their shoulder or fix their ACL or something like that. And, you know, but at the same time, I still liken it to kind of a very uh, expensive Band-Aid because you're still, even though you're replacing someone's knee, you're not really getting rid of their arthritis. I mean, you are, you know, sort of imp impacting that joint, but the disease is still there. The, the arthritis disease is still there. You, you know, the, the, the surface of the, the articular surface has changed, but I mean, the joint is still have arthritis in it. And, you know, there's still the synovial uh, surroundings, the, the, the soft tissues around there and the rest of the body. So uh, now I think there's more of an opportunity to holistically you know, actually change the course of disease. Cool. And, and you talk about your new company. Maybe we can uh, get into that. What is it that uh, you do? And um, you know, how are you trying to help people? And uh, what's this carnivore diet anyway? It's like, uh, what are you supposed to be uh, eating if you if you do it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with the company. I'm wearing a shirt, Rivero. And so this is just, we have licensed physicians in all 50 states. I'm the chief medical officer and co-founder. Um, you know, our basically our mission is basically to do what I'm talking about, take people with various uh, uh, sort of illnesses that we can do. It's all remote. So we're a digital health company. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're focusing on metabolic and inflammatory autoimmune conditions, which is what we've seen, uh, you know, a, a good response to with lifestyle. Carnivore diets is not the focus of the company. Now, we will use that as needed. And I think some patients will, will benefit from that, but it is, it is, you know, more of, you know, kind of a, I mean, there's a, there's a general pattern where we'll, we'll sort of remove, I think certain common of problematic foods and then sort of do a bit of an elimination phase, 
hopefully mitigate the disease and then sort of reintroduce. And I said, that's uh, the, sort of the overall thing we've got. Like I said, physician lets, you know, the physician leads a team. Uh, we have coaching, we have, you know, you know, AI software, uh, a lot of technology attached to that. And so that is, that's what the company does. Now you ask about, you know, carnivore diet. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> sort of what it sounds like. It's basically a lot of meat, basically. I mean, for the most part, and there's, some people have some variations on that, but it, as it's kind of interesting. So this was not called a carnivore diet 10 years ago. It was called a zero carb diet or something else. And I, I just called it the carnivore diet because a publisher asked me to write a book about my experience. And I was like, what am I going to call this thing? So I kind of said, well, carnivore sounds pretty cool. And it's stuck for whatever reason that has been the name that has, I guess, had the most traction. And so there's been a lot of people now that have sort of opined on what they think a carnivore diet is. Uh, for me, it is basically, you know, a, an animal-based focused diet, you know, and with minimal to no plant food. So it sounds crazy, but it does seem to work for, for a number of people. And I know it's kind of funny because it's become almost cult-like. I mean, you get people that label themselves the carnivore superstar, and it's kind of funny on social media. And that's not my intention. My intention was this is a therapeutic protocol, and it can be used for a period of time. Some people want to do it long-term. That's fine by me, I think. Uh, but I mean, its focus is really to, uh, one of the things, and I, I know, I know you'll probably agree with this. There's a lot of people that struggle with, um, I think food addiction, I think that's a real issue. And I think, you know, this is almost a complete abstinence approach to that, just like you would do with alcohol or any other, you know, sort of recreational drug. I mean, I think there, there has to be a period or ideally there's a period of complete abstinence. And I think this effectively does that. And that's one of the things, um, you know, I can, I, we just, uh, I interviewed a gal, 800 pounds, you know, 800 pounds. And she tried everything. She got, you know, gastric, uh, bariatric surgery, uh, every dietary regimen you could think of, vegan diet, juicing diets, weight watchers, on and on, calorie counting, you know, until the cows came home. And she said she went carnivore the first time she found the off switch. It was the first time she felt that she could actually stop her compulsive compulsions and addictive behavior and she's able to lost she lost 500 pounds in under two years which i think wow, is that's remarkable lot. that's amazing yeah well, i think that there is something to what uh, what you're saying of course uh, a lot of ultra processed food can be highly rewarding and potentially addictive and uh, well if you go on a carnivore diet you are basically excluding all of that right yeah. That's yeah. Ideally. Like, yeah. yeah. There's very, there's hard to make an ultra processed carnivore food. I mean, I mean, I guess you could, you know, and I, I hesitate to call yogurt ultra processed cause I don't think it is. I, as you know, there's a difference between processing and ultra processing. There's actually a, a standard definition of that. And I think it's really, really challenging to make an ultra processed all animal based food that anybody would eat in my view. And I think, as you mentioned, a lot of these ultra processed foods are addictive and, and they're, they're addictive by design. I mean, there are literally, as you probably are aware, there are, food chemists that literally their job is to make this food very, very addictive by nature. And I've talked to some of them that, that, that actually have regretted that they worked in that, that, uh, capacity, but yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that, uh, this is, you know, in the American diet, it's close to 70% of our diet right now is ultra processed food, which is absolutely shameful in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, someone listening might feel like it sounds strange that, we have food food industry trying to make their food addictive. Why would they want to do that? Well, 
is just why would more they not? <laughs> why would they not? Why would they, do that? why would they not? Exactly. Uh, it's just they have a responsibility to, to their shareholders to increase uh, profits, and and uh, it's hard to find anything more profitable than to make your products addictive, because then people eat more, buy more, yeah. profits go way up, right? Absolutely. So yeah. basically, they they have to do it, or or someone else will come in and do it and take their market share, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that that is absolutely true. There, you know, like I said, unfortunately, is most things come back to greed and and producing producing extra money. So yeah. <laughs> well, or at least you know it's um, it's uh, it's the way a capitalist capitalist system works. Uh, unless I suppose either government comes in or people change what they eat and buy, then. Uh, things can change but i, I don't think uh, we can uh, expect the food industry to solve this problem or or what would you say well i think you know you you, you touched on it it's it's, it's going to be driven by market demand you know and i think really what you have to do is convince the people that this is not in their best interest to continue to eat this way and the problem is like i said when you know when you tell a smoker it's not in their best interest to to, to smoke most of them still smoke so it's you know, what is a better option for them? You know, and I think that's really the problem is how do we find something that's sustainable that, that they actually can do uh, and enjoy, uh, you know, because I mean, you know, a lot, of, I mean, the food tastes good. I mean, I'll be the first one to admit ultra processed food tastes delicious, you know, and it's just like, why would I not want to eat this? You know, because it's, it, 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 it stimulates these reward centers and, and to tell somebody that you need to give that up is tough unless you have something that you can replace it with in many ways. Yes, indeed. So, um, since you have now become this uh, big advocate for for carnivore diets, uh, who should uh, test it? Do you think? Well, I mean, uh, it's kind of funny. I mean, most people end up doing it do this kind of as a last resort because it seems so. You know, I, I, they can't imagine their life without you know so much variety because there is such variety in the world. I mean, you go to the grocery store and there are literally ten thousand products to choose from. And you're saying you want me to restrict it to a handful of you know foods that are the same thing every day? Um, I think somebody who is uh, uh, you know recalcitrant to other treatments might be a good way to play, to to consider it. I mean, there's a lot of people that have tried a lot of different diets. They've been on different medications and have not gotten uh, relief. Um, I think people that are struggling with food addiction, this is very effective. I think particularly certain autoimmune diseases have had relatively good success with this and i think in my view you know things like crohn's disease which you know unfortunately is becoming more and more common ulcerative colitis the so-called inflammatory bowel diseases in my view that should be like a first-line treatment in my view because you know the normal you know if we look at the normal sort of pathway for that it's um well let's put you on some corticosteroid drugs or maybe even we'll put you on some uh, immune modulating biologic drugs which are very expensive and they tend not to work over time anyway and they keep switching that and then often you end up with some sort of uh, bowel resection, particularly, you know, with Crohn's disease, um, where I think many of that could be avoided. You could, you could sort of fix whatever the underlying problem is. And I think that's still controversial. And then maybe later you can sort of uh, introduce a more varied diet, which I, which I see very often. I see people with, with pretty severe, either use ulcer colitis or Crohn's disease, and they go on carnivore for six months a year and then they're able to start to reintroduce other foods. And I think that's, that, that to me, that's an optimal outcome um, rather than what the typical standard of care sort of treatment is. So there's, you know, 
Uh, there's people with, you know, recalcitrant uh, mental health disorders, which seem to get better. I think, you know, this is something that, as you, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Chris Palmer and George Ede and some of these other folks and myself, who's been saying that nutrition has an incredibly vital and important role with mental health disease, just like every other disease. I mean, the brain is an internal organ, just like the heart and the liver is. And so there's no reason to, or liver are, uh, it's no reason to think that nutrition wouldn't impact mental health disease as well. Yeah, it's probably probably does. Of course, we need some pretty good evidence, I suppose, to to be to be sure about how this this works. Are you aware of any good evidence for uh, like why could uh, carnivore diet work well for Crohn's disease, for example? Do you have any theory about uh, well, that? Or yeah, I mean, there's some there's some uh, evidence around gut hyperpermeability. There's some evidence around um, uh, sort of the energy requirements of the uh enterocytes uh that, that those those things have been looked at uh, a friend of mine dr pran yoganathan is a gastroenterologist in australia and he's looked at that and that his thought is that crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis have to do with inability of the cell to properly fuel itself you know these these particular you know colonocytes and enterocytes and that you know by providing them a stable energy source i.e. maybe uh, maybe uh, maybe perhaps ketones maybe have a, have a role here. Um, I think there's some evidence that, I mean, clearly whatever gut dysfunction you want to call, whether it's dysbiosis due to an altered microbiome, which certainly has, has to have somewhat of an impact. I think it's very complicated because, you know, the microbiome is incredibly complicated. It's very dynamic and there's literally trillions of organisms and thousands of species and who knows what, what all, how they interact in, in, in conjunction. And then, um, you know, the concept of gut hyperpermeability, which is, I mean, our gut is permeable, that's by design, but I mean, when it becomes too permeable, we see the initiation of inflammation, perhaps autoimmunity. This is based on the work of guys like uh, Alessa Fazano at Boston's Children, who's delved into that quite a bit. So, I mean, I think there's a number of things that are going on. I mean, I think just general nutri poor nutrition may have a role. I think that uh, uh, our you know, our standard American diet while, while replete in calories is fairly deficient in, in some of the, some of the nutrients. I mean, we look at the overall nutritional status of, of even Americans who are by large, you know, obese still have some holes in their diet for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, but speaking of, of different, um, different diseases where, uh, carnivore diet could potentially be helpful and all this science, well, there are also diseases where people fear that it might be harmful, right? Like heart disease, cholesterol goes up. You do see that in some people, I suppose, on a zero-carb or carnivore diet that uh, LDL levels, total cholesterol levels can go up quite a bit, at least in a in a minority of people. Um, and I know there is a new study that came out, which is controversial, but, you know, shows interesting things. Do you want to... Share some about your thoughts on it. Sure, sure. Um, I think that you know the the sort of s mainstream lipidology cardiology hypothesis is that you know a heart disease is primarily driven by elevated LDL or more specifically ApoB fragments over time. So the higher they are, the longer they are, the more likely you are to progress to cardiovascular disease. And I think that that probably holds true for the majority of society. I think, you know, because the majority of society also has other comorbidities, particularly in, in you know, these times. Um, so we have some, you know, some people that are saying, well, wait a minute, what if 
what if I don't have, have those comorbidities? What if I'm quote unquote metabolically healthy? And that really has not been looked at because most of the, most of the cardiology data is not on healthy people. It's on who get people that are diseased. And then when you look at imaging studies or, you know, plaque progression studies, you already have a subset of the population that's already been identified as sick, right? And so what this new study was presented was like, what if we had actually healthy people and we examine them and, and see what happens with their, uh, with their uh, ability to tolerate high LDL, I suppose. And that, you know, initial study that Matt Budoff presented, again, it's baseline data based on roughly five years of very, very high exposure to uh, LDL cholesterol, you know, something, you know, two, three, four times the upper limit of what's considered normal, uh, did not seem to have any significant progression of their, or any significant incidence of uh, coronary, coronary artery disease relative to a age match and health match control group, which is interesting. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you can ignore LDL cholesterol and just because you're on a low carb diet, you can eat, you, you can have LDL can be as high as possible. I think that is obviously over-interpreting or over-interpreting um, the, the results of that study. Now, obviously there's more to come. They're gonna, they're, they're checking it for a year to see what any progression it, 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 that occurs. Uh, you know, CCTA, which Matt Budoff is one of the world's leading authorities on, says that is more than adequate enough time to, to see if progression occurs. And so we'll have to wait. I mean, those data, that data will be available in February, or at least they'll finish acquiring the data in February. And then whether or not it gets presented in, you know, April, May, something like that, we'll have to wait for that. But um, um, I think that, you know, in my view, and again, Maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I tend to view LDL cholesterol as part of the causal pathway, which I think that's pretty clear, or ApoB, I guess I should be more specific. Um, but I think there is some something that you know. I think there there are dependent variables that can mitigate or exacerbate you know its potency, and I think that's a fair statement to say. And so, uh, in my view, and, and I talk to people about this all the time because they'll go on a carnivore diet and they will fix some horrible, horrible condition. Maybe it's inflammatory bowel disease. Maybe it's some intractable mental health condition. And their LDL cholesterol will go up. Some do, some don't, as you mentioned. Some people it doesn't go up, some people it doesn't. I don't know. It's hard to predict who will and who won't. Um, but I will frequently ask them, I, you know, I will tell them, hey, you know, by your LDL cholesterol going up 50%, your heart disease risk may have gone up, you know, potentially. And most of them will tell me, I don't really care about that at that point because I feel so much better. And I think as physicians, we have to take that into account. Maybe they, you know, they care once they get their heart attack. Well, yeah, that's the thing. You know, they would care once they get the heart attack. But then, then you're like, well, maybe you can take a lipid-lowering drug, whether it's a statin or a PCSK9 inhibitor or one or the other, you know, bempedoic acid or whatever's out there now. And so some of them, some of them might want to use that as a strategy. A lot of them are concerned because they don't want to have side effects. Some of them just frankly don't believe it. They're like, I feel so good. There's no way I could be at higher risk for heart disease. And empirically, that kind of, I can see where you get that. And it seems to make, because your question, why would every single biomarker of health improve and just one variable go up? How does that, how does that match up? And it's kind of interesting to sort of justify that. And I mean, because I know there's a wealth of data showing that LDL cholesterol is causal in, in or it's necessary. Um, the question, see, the question is around sufficiency, you know, and I think that's where this new data may, may, uh, may shed some light on that. But yeah, I don't, I don't casually dismiss LDL cholesterol. Like some people, I hear some people saying, 
it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not important. Uh, oh, I'm low carb. It's not important. I think that's a dangerous uh, tack to take. I think it means, hey, let's get some more information, maybe monitor more closely. I think imaging can be very helpful. Um, so that's what I usually recommend. Hey, go get a CAC score or something along those lines. So at least you have, if you're going to roll the dice, at least you've got some sort of window to see what's going on because that's what I did. I mean, when I, when I, cause I've, I've been on a ketogenic diet and a, all meat diet for a long time. And I, I had a CAC score. I'm due for another one. Actually, I'll probably get one this year or next in 2024. And it was zero, which is, which is comforting. You know, it's 52. Right. I'm not that so. at the time I'll be 57 in a few, in a few weeks. And, uh, you know, I mean, I know like my, my ability to perform as an athlete, my cardiorespiratory system is very, very good. So it's unlikely that I've developed significant cardiovascular disease. I mean, it's possible, but again, I think it's unlikely, uh, mm. You know, so just for, is, uh, yeah, for the people listening, a CAC score is basically you do a, a CT scan, a, a, you check your coronary arteries to see if you have calcium um, stuck there as a sign of uh, of uh, heart disease. Yeah. So a score of zero means you you don't have that, and that's a, that's a very good sign. If you go back to the study, I haven't read it in detail yet, but I've followed the debate on X and. Uh, Apparently, they exclude people uh, with baseline coronary heart disease, or at least some people, uh, because it wasn't considered ethical to yeah. keep them. Uh, yeah, I talked uh, to I talked to Dave. I think the total number of people excluded for that reason was one. So it wasn't like they excluded massive amounts of people for C for positive CAC. I think I think there was actually one person excluded from the study uh, due to that. But the but you you're correct in that. They were concerned about the ethics of that because, you know, there was a, the, um, maybe you're familiar with the Western Danish heart registry study. It was done by Mortensen in 2022, where they showed that zero CAC score uh, was not associated, LDL was not associated with any evidence of, of what's the so-called MACE outcomes and major adverse cardiac events. If there was a zero CAC, LDL cholesterol had no bearing whatsoever on whether somebody progressed to, uh, you know, heart attack, stroke you know, sudden death or revascularization. And so, but despite that, you know, it's considered that if somebody already has disease, it is theoretically dangerous to let them persist in a, you know, a very high LDL state. So that's one of the reasons they did. I think it was just to get through the IRB in, in a way, because uh, they were like, we don't want people dying during our study, which is, I think that's a, that's a, a safe way to do it. Uh, so what they're asking, what they're looking at you. is what about healthy people? Is LDL cholesterol a problem for otherwise metabolically healthy people? And I think they've sort of, I don't think they fully answered that question, but they've started to sort of, you know, examine that a little bit. Yeah. And I, I think from my perspective, what, what you're saying is, sounds relatively reasonable. I mean, I, I, I think I have a similar interpretation myself. LDL is sort of, it's necessary to get heart disease. But, you know, if everything else is perfect and you have a modestly high LDL, is that a problem? We don't really, as far as I understand, have any good data. And this study is, of course, an interesting, interesting extra uh, new knowledge into that. And we'll have to follow people much longer, I guess, to get the you know, full insights from this. But at least uh, preliminary data kind of pointing in that direction, saying that, um, you know, if everything else is perfect, you're metabolically healthy, and your LDL is somewhat high, then at least you're not gonna 
instantly get heart disease. It, uh, it seems to be uh, taking some time at least. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. That's a fair statement. Um, and I think that, um, you know, this is really this is really some of the first data to answer that question. Like I said, I mentioned that Western Danish uh, Denmark study that, that sort of also kind of looked at this in some degree. But, uh, you know, the question is, how long does it take? Because we always hear that, um, you know, heart disease takes decades to to evolve. Now, these people are in their mid 50s. So, I mean, they've, you know, they've gotten at least some level of, you know, it's, it's unlikely you're going to find a lot of heart disease in 20 year olds, but you start looking 50s, 60s, 70s, and that's where, that's where we start really seeing it. And so, uh, so, I mean, it's interesting and well, there's more to come and, uh, I, you know, obviously this, this isn't the defining study on this question, but I think it does raise a question. It does sort of maybe make people say is LDL always, always a problem if it's elevated. And, you know, as you know, there are people that, have heart attacks with low LDL and there's people that don't have heart attacks with a high LDL cholesterol. And the question is what, what differentiates those people? And I think that, uh, you know, and I guess, I guess over a long enough period of time, if we're talking 90 year olds, I mean, honestly, I probably will die of heart disease. I mean, that's just what the odds are. I mean, hopefully at 90 rather than 70 would be, would be preferable, but, uh, you know, over a long enough period of time, everybody's going to die of something. And then again, of course, we put in the all cause mortality, part of the equation then it's like is it better to die of a heart attack or to die of cancer and uh -huh. i think that's another it's another you know another sort of discussion as long as you're 90 or 100 <clears throat> i think that's pretty good anyways um but yeah maybe maybe the bottom line is just that uh, ldl cholesterol is just one major factor among several and uh, they all matter yeah, I think that's a fair statement. And they do. And I think, you know, I mean, there's some studies that will show that perhaps diabetes is the biggest risk for pre-diabetes or insulin resistance may be a more powerful factor. I mean, that's, that's also controversial depending on who you talk to. But I think there's there's no down. I think there's no downside to improving your metabolic health. I mean, I think that's a fair statement. For sure. And if LDL goes up way up, then uh, maybe it's worth... Uh tweaking your approach a bit, or maybe even depending on your risk factors, maybe even going on some medication. Is that fair? I think that's fair for some people. I mean, again, again, you have to, you have to sort of, uh, you know, as a physician, obviously you have to give them full form informed consent and let the patient make the decision. You give them the best information you can. Yeah, absolutely. But, uh, if we leave cholesterol and go back to, uh, um, carnivore diets and, and you, you actually sent in, uh, sent me what you eat in a day and I was, uh, <laughs> Uh, slightly surprised, I guess. Um, do you want to take us through it yourself? Or well, sure, sure. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I, that was uh, what is today? Today's month. So I think it was my meals on Saturday. I think I sent it to you on Saturday because you asked if I'd do that, and I said yeah. And so I think I ended up eating around. I think it was about three and a half pounds of ribeye steak. I had like three steaks that day, yeah. two for breakfast. Uh, I had a little. I had some a little bit of dried steak that I sometimes make as a kind of a, like a little snack. And then I ate a bunch of yogurt, you know, some Greek yogurt, non-fat Greek yogurt, which you're, I know you're a big fan of. And uh, that was my diet. That was my day. And I think it was around a little over five pounds of food, which is, you know, it sounds like a lot, but I'm a, I'm a, you know, as you know, I'm a pretty big guy and uh, I'm training hard. And, and this, and that was probably, as I mentioned to you, that was probably slightly more than an average day, but just because I've ramped up my training as I'm getting ready to try to try to set some records. I, I just need more, you know, as I, tra as I train harder, I just need more fuel is, is obvious. And so, uh, but that's, that's not atypical at all for me. That's, that's a pretty typical yeah. day. 
Yeah, so three and a half pounds of ribeye, uh, 32 ounces of non-fat Greek yogurt. I added it up uh, in our uh, program and uh, got 528 grams of protein in a day. That's, uh, that's a lot, that's isn't a lot. it? <laughs> <laughs> that's like the most uh, I've seen, I think. I, I know you're a big guy. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm a tall guy, but you're, you're tall and wide, uh, like strong as few others. 5,300 calories. Is that the normal day? Uh, yeah, I mean, I well, I mean, again, if I am not training really, really hard, I'd say normally I'm probably closer to about four, four, four to 4,500, 4,500 would be probably me at maintenance. And if I'm trying to lean out, I'll probably drop down into the 3,000 range. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's, that's not atypical at all for me. I mean, like I said, it's, you know, I've eaten way more than that in the past. I mean, years gone by when I was in my twenties and thirties, I could easily pack in seven, 8,000 calories a day. I mean, and, uh, uh, you know, very easily, very easy could do that. So I'm, I'm, I'm used to eating a lot. <laughs> You're a big eater, uh, a big guy. So we also looked at satiety. We haven't talked about that much in the, um, in this uh, podcast yet, but it's it's our approach to sort of weigh together all these different factors. How much does this food uh, promote over or under eating or sort of normal balanced uh, satiety levels? Um, and uh, the way we do it, uh, the scale, the way the scale works is zero is the least satiety per calorie. That's basically your worst ultra processed food like donuts and uh, chocolate and, and so forth. 100 is the highest per calorie, and there's where you have uh, yeah, leafy greens or something. And then 50, we try to aspirationally make it some sort of normal, balanced, uh, satiety per calorie level, uh, foods that uh, can drive people to eat uh, a normal amount uh, per day. You, uh, your foods got uh, 63 average, which is uh, uh, a little bit on the higher end, uh, which, you know, would... Uh, you know, in theory, be a, a good place if you want to be become really strong and lean. Um, yeah, what do you think about that? I, it's not surprising. I mean, I think that you know, uh, I think a meat based diet is is very satiety is very satiating. I should say. I know there's a difference between satiation and satiety. Is uh, I know you guys like to talk about, but yeah, I mean that's one of the things I hear very often is that I, you know, when I eat steak and eggs or something like that, I just don't have a lot of hunger afterwards, which I think is a good thing. I think that's one of the problems we have is, you know, a lot of the, you know, as you know, the, these low satiety foods are just, you just have to eat and eat and eat and eat. You can't stop eating those types of things. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, I'm not surprised the scores are, and, and again, I would not want to eat a hundred percent, a hundred satiety score diet. It would be to me unpalatable. You know, if I just ate leafy yeah, greens that's, all day, that's, that would not, be the, awful. that's not the goal. <laughs> that's yeah, not I, the goal. I'm sure it's not. Yeah. And, and so I think, it probably is it, it probably um, sort of uh, validating that the score is what it is because I think that's how I feel. I feel like, yeah, I felt like I'm completely satisfied and completely and, and it, it, you know, my goals, my aspirational goals are strength and you know fitness and, and relatively decent body composition. So um, I think it supports that for sure. Yeah, so the idea with this uh, scoring is that uh, you know if you want to lean out a bit, then uh try to go a little bit higher that would support you in, in in sort of eating more calories wanting to eat more calories uh, uh sorry fewer calories and vice versa if you're like if you're getting too lean if you want to uh, have more energy for exercise uh, you find it hard to eat uh, enough then 
go down a little bit. How does that sound to you? Does that seem like a reasonable yeah, approach? I mean, it's, it, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, obviously there's energy and there's, you know, if you're going to do things, you need energy. I think the problem is we have people that, that, that it'll get a lot of energy and don't want to do anything. And then that, that really is, is the, actually a pretty the problem. rare problem, I guess, in the U S today and most of the, you know, developed world, I suppose, yeah, very few people need to eat uh, more, right? Yeah, I'd say that's fair. I think that's quite fair to say. So speaking of sort of the obesity epidemic or this epidemic of, of metabolic disease uh, in, in the US and around the world, um, that is something that now affects most people. Uh, according to some research, 93% of adult US uh, people have poor metabolic health in some way, you know, either uh, uh, Waste circumference is high, or blood pressure is high, blood sugar is high, cholesterol is off, etc. Uh, what's your take on the main uh, cause of this? Because this has changed quite a quite profoundly over the past few decades. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that there's <clears throat> obviously there's more than one factor. I don't think there's a significant genetic component to that. I mean, I I, I just dismiss that as a fact that. I mean, yes, genetics can impact to a degree, but that's not the main driving factor. Our genetics have not changed appreciably over the last hundred years. I mean, we're still very similar to what we were a uh, hundred years ago. Um, I do think that a high, you know, sedentary behavior has, has become more the norm. I think that is clearly part of the problem. Uh, but I do think our food, uh, you know, our food availability is, is also a major problem. I think that, uh, again, this, as you point out, this high uh, access to very low satiety, high energy food, you know, and if you want to call it ultra processed food. And I think, I think the ultra processing does impact the quality of the food in a way. I think when you turn things into powder, you change the surface area uh, significantly and you change the absorption characteristics of that. I mean, I mentioned that there was a study shared by Darius Mozafarian saying that, you know, up to 22% of our calories are often consumed by our microbiome, but if they are ultra processed, that's kind of bypassed all these flours and sugars and things like that don't really get into the distal part of the digestive system. They're kind of absorbed proximally where there's, you know, very little interaction with the microbiome. And so we're actually absorbing more calories than we did, you know, 40 years ago, even though we might be eating, consuming the same amount. And although we've consumed more calories in the U S from the 1960s to about 2000, at least according to Mozafari and that from 2000 onward, Calorie, caloric consumption is about the same. It's just that we've consumed a much greater percentage of ultra-processed foods, which I think is interesting. So more powders that we consume, the more we absorb, the more calories we, we absorb. And so we're, we're ultimately, we're, we're, we're taking in more. Uh, but, you know, even though we may not be eating more, we're taking in more. Uh, so that's part of it. I think that, um, you know, chronic stress probably has a role. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, you know, just subject to chronic stress. I mean, poor sleeping habits. I think people are, you know, I mean, as you know, poor sleep leads to increasing insulin resistance, which often leads to poor dietary choices, which allows us to overconsume. So I think ultimately at the end of the day, we're eating too much of the wrong foods. I mean, that's the ultimate problem. And then we're also not, you know, not moving in a way we should. Um, and I know that's calories in, calories out type of thing, but I mean, that ultimately is, 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 is happening, but at the end of the end of the day, what, what are the variables that are driving that? And I think that's things that we look at, you know, the success of these new GLP-1 receptor agonist drugs, I mean, points to that, that drug is not a, not a calorie drug. It is a, 
hormone satiety drug, right? I mean, that's, and that's why they're having success with it. So they're addressing the satiety aspect of it. And lo and behold, people are losing weight. And so can you do that without the drugs? And I think certainly you can, but that, that's, a harder, that's a harder way to do it. But I think in my view, it's a better way to do it. But again, like most things, you know, easy gains are often kind of cheap gains. It may not be lasting. Yeah. So why do you, why do you think it's better to do it um, with uh, with foods rather than uh, these satiety hormones, the GLP ones, the Ozempics of the world? Well, I mean, you know, I mean, let's just use this analogy, and it, you know, I'll use this as an analogy, and I'll get into this. So, if I were to exercise and I go running, my heart rate's going to go up, right? I mean, that's a normal physiologic response. I could sit on the couch and and administer a drug, dobutamine or something else, and make my heart rate go up, right? Is that the same thing? Probably, you know, most of most of us say no, it's not. You're obviously not getting all the benefits from that. And so, I think when you are artificially invoking incretin hormones, I mean, they're 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 there for a reason. I mean, they, you know, we have GIP proximally, we have GLP one distally in the ileum, we have the ileal break, and so that's supposed that 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 physiological phenomenon is supposed to occur in response to specific environmental nutritional stimuli, right? And so we're artificially doing that. Does it work? Yeah, does it? Yeah, it does it. But is there a downside to that down the road? Um, do you, I mean, just like, let's say I put someone on exogenous testosterone, right? What happens to their natural endogenous production? So are we going to see endogenous GLP-1 and incretin hormone suppression to where once we're off the drug, we've got problems with that? I mean, you know, there's obviously there's some long-term studies show that many people regain most if not all the weight afterwards it's, you know they're very expensive drugs as, as well uh, i don't know how much they're being used in 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 europe i know they're being pushed very heavily in the u.s uh you know nova nordisk out of uh, denmark is you know pushing it in the u.s but i don't think they even use it in denmark very much and so they're kind of it's kind of interesting how this is playing out and we're being kind of told that there's nothing you can do about obesity it's not a lifestyle disease uh just take these take these drugs I can. I'm I mean, concerned. It's an, uh, you know, interesting uh, phenomenon where uh, doctors or other experts say that, "Hey, this is uh, this is a genetic disease. Obesity is genetic. Nothing yep. you can do about it. Just take the drug." And then they're being funded by these drug by companies. The same companies that make the drugs. Yeah, it's it's, it's, uh, it's uh, pretty Stanford at, out of out of out of Harvard, which she and she happens to sit on the U.S. Dietary Guidelines p- panel, which is, I think, that's a little bit concerning, quite honestly. I mean, we do have a, yeah, I mean, it's definitely worth uh, looking into uh, what what should be allowed. Um, but there's an interesting situation now where, okay, we have the, the food industry is producing these ultra-processed foods that cause people to eat much more, making a lot of uh, profits from them, of course. And then you have the pharmaceutical industry coming in with these drugs to mitigate the health problems that are caused by the food and everybody makes a lot of money. And, uh, but the question is, you know, is this ultimately good for people eating this kind of food and then having to take a lot of drugs to mitigate the side effects, uh, you know, for your weight, for your blood sugar, for your blood pressure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You could add ton drugs to take care of these eventually. Yeah. I, I know there's some company was trying to develop an exercise pill. You can get all the benefits of exercise without exercising. And it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I mean, I think you and I would agree, no, that's not the best optimal way to deal with this. You know, obviously prevention is better than, than, you know, sort of uh, treatment or mitigation. 
but there are a lot, you know, a lot of people, if you could say, Hey, if I could eat chocolate cake all day, every day, and just take a pill and be healthy, they would sign up for that, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, uh, because you know, they're just, I mean, I think honestly, they have a lot of issues with addiction around this stuff. And so, and I think it is almost predatory that we have a, industries that, that sort of rely on that and, and support that. Um, so yeah, it's, there has, there, I, I mean, there is a better way and, and you know that, and I know that, and there are a lot of, fortunately, there are a lot of people that are sort of catching on to this, you know, and I think that's, it's a good, now. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting what you, what you just said that, that, uh, you know, we have addictive foods here. Like if you were to eat or I was to eat chocolate cake uh, every day, I would probably develop lots of health problems and then I have to take all these medications. And uh, I must say, but at least I had chocolate cake every day. But I wonder, you know, how happy do you really become if you're addicted to, you know, sugar and fat uh, cake all day? Yeah. Do you really enjoy it if you eat it all day, every day? Will you be happy? I mean, I don't think I would be. No, you won't. And and actually, there's studies that show that 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 consumption of those food actually leads to depression. But in the short term, it's just like the it's like a, you know like the heroin addict. I mean, they get that short term reward, which ultimately leads to you know chronic, you know, disease and maladaptive behavior. And so, uh, but yeah, I mean, but it's tough. I mean, because we we you know we we like these short term rewards. That's why social media is so addictive you know we've got these little 130 second clips you know and you can't stop looking at this stuff it's uh just one more uh you know they've 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 hacked the human mind i think was, i don't know is it rob lustig has talked about this i think and they know what they're doing and it's yeah. it's uh you know we we are manipulatable manipulable creatures and indeed you know. <laughs> indeed uh let's go back to uh, carnivore um if anybody wants to try it uh do you have some favorite meals to Give people uh, suggestions. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, recommend? I mean, my first thought is that um, in order to be successful, you know, with any dietary regimen, one, you got to like the food. I mean, if you don't like it, you're not going to eat it. And two, it has to provide a level of satiety. You can't be hungry all the time. I mean, I think those are pretty a solid, in my view, recommendations with regard to being able to sustain some. I mean, we can all experience hunger for a few weeks. We can we can all knuckle out, knuckle down and do that, but you know, long-term, we're not going to be able to do that. No one's going to, no one's going to be successful being hungry all the time and no one's going to stick to a diet they don't like. And so if you don't, for some reason, like ribeye steaks, maybe you got dropped on the head, on your head as a kid. And I'm just kidding, <laughs> but you know, um, I, I tell people, you know, just find some sort of animal products that you really think you're going to enjoy, whether it's ribeye steaks or seafood or chicken or pork or poultry, or, you know, whatever you like eggs perhaps eggs and bacon is, is is you know quite tasty for a lot of people start with that um and you know just get used to doing that you know i i did it one meal at a time i said one day i, I said one day i'm gonna have bacon and eggs and no no toast no orange juice and that's that was my introduction and then i did two meals and then i did a day and then i did three days and i did a week and then i finally mustered up the courage to do a month um so i think you know do I tell people that, um, you know, obviously the goal is to focus on animal foods. If you need some sort of spices to make it exciting, go ahead and start with that. Dairy products are one. Dairy is kind of an interesting, and I'm interested to see what your satiety dairy sort of interest is. Because as you mentioned, I, I eat a bunch of yogurt, which I like, and I, I generally tolerate it pretty well. It's not something I eat like all the time, but occasionally I'll go through phases uh, where I'll do that. 
But I tell people a lot of times dairy use kind of sparingly in many cases because it can be over, it can be easy to overconsume. You know, particularly liquid dairy or, or things like cheeses, which can be very addictive. Uh, as, as I'm sure maybe your satiety stuff might point to that, depending on the types. Um, so that's you know, be creative, have fun with it, enjoy it. I don't tell people to count calories and that stuff initially because I think really the goal early on is really to sort of maybe break a food addiction or maybe, maybe uh, uh, you know, get past these cravings uh, so you eat enough and you may not lose any weight initially. But then after, you know, you adapt to this two, three months and then you can tighten it up and dial things in. Um, I think that uh, what I tell people is, you know, there's going to be some cravings at some point and you have to have a plan in place. You know, failure to plan is planning to fail in my mind. And so what are you going to do when the cravings come? Often these cravings are tied to hormonal surges, things like ghrelin, as I'm sure you're aware and those tend to be time limited. So, you know, like you got a craving, it's going to last 30, 45 minutes, figure out a way to get through that, move on, and then likely you'll be fine. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's a, there's a number of things that I tell people, uh, for people that want to do it for a particular reason, I think, like I said, first, number one is change your relationship with food. I think that's got to be the first task, you know, uh, because we eat for non-nutritive reasons all the time. We're bored, social pressures, uh, you know, stress you know, what the time of day it is, you know, that we're just used to it and we're maybe we not even be hungry. So change that relationship to food. So you're eating for nutrition. You should still enjoy it. I mean, I enjoy every meal. I mean, I've got Andreas, I've got two ribeye steaks waiting for me after we do after, well, I got a few more interviews and stuff like that, but afterwards I'm going to enjoy every bite of that stuff, you know, and it's not like I'm depriving myself. I mean, I, I thoroughly enjoy it. Uh, pretty delicious or can be. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I would love to hear your point of view because, I, I mean, I totally agree with you. You, you can't just uh, count calories, restrict calories, be hungry. Nobody likes that, and it's not sustainable long-term for the vast majority of people anyways. And and also, like you said, people have to be able to enjoy the foods that they eat. So, I mean, the, pro the approach that we're taking, uh, which I think is very com uh, compatible with carnivore and uh, many other diets too, uh, is to look at the satiety per calorie of various foods. And the idea is, you know, we eat intuitively, we eat to satiety, but if we do it with ultra-processed foods, with, you know, low protein, high energy dense, very hedonic, very rewarding foods, then we end up eating way more than we need. But if we do, if we eat intuitively until we're satisfied, until we have satiety with real foods, such as meat and eggs and, and such, then we tend to eat the amount that we need and then we're just not interested in in eating more so what do you think about that approach i guess it's you know i think for obesity i mean you know and that's a huge problem i think that's that's a that's a very solid tech you know solid solid sort of uh, scheme um i guess you know and, and obviously a lot of diseases are obesity related so if you can if you can get people a normal body weight, you can reduce a lot of suffering and a lot of disease in the world there. And I guess the, you know, depending upon, you know, because I know there's a sort of belief that, well, ultra processed foods are not going away, which is true. They're not going away. We're not going to, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden all the box food is going to be magically gone. It's always going to be part of our, our, our diet. And the question is, do you just say, Hey, I'm just not going to eat that stuff. I'm just going to leave that stuff alone and just eat single one ingredient foods the rest of my life, which I think is a, I think that's a viable and, and quite honestly, a very healthy option for a lot of people. Uh, but then you have these people that are like, well, I, I still want to be able to have these different types of foods. And 
how do I decide um, which one is going to provide me the most nutrition with the least, I guess, the least calories and the most satiety uh, with the least calories. Um, what I would say is that, you know, depending on what you're treating, like, like, like I said, if I, I could probably design a diet that is optimal satiety per calorie that still makes people sick uh, based on, based on certain autoimmune conditions. Maybe they have gut intolerances because I think we have to really, that's why I think the elimination phase of carnivore is so helpful. And that even though the sati- you could design a satiety per calorie, like mine's 63, we could probably design a, design a satiety per calorie diet 63 that would actually still be problematic for that same person. So I think even sure. within the context of satiety, you still have to consider gut irritants and sensitivities, which how much percentage of the population that affects, I don't know. It could be 10%. It could be 30%. Hard to say. I mean, we have, what, 20% of the population has IBS in the U.S., and I don't know where it is in other places. Yeah. So we do know that that the, the the ingredients matter irrespective of maybe even how much satiety they provoke. So I think, I think as a general scheme, it's a good place to start for sure. And I know you guys are refining, and, you know, I know it's maybe a, a – you know, like if somebody came to you with Crohn's disease, would you would you tell your program any differently? I mean, that, that and I don't know if you're planning even to, even to treat that. So, I mean, it just depends. Yeah, I mean, I'm not claiming. Uh, well, first of all, it's a work in progress, as you know. We're constantly mm-hmm. refining it, and uh, um, but uh, secondly, I mean, it's it's uh, it's focusing on this satiety and helping people to eat. You know, um, the amount that they need uh, while still having satiety while still not being hungry etc but it's not uh, we're not marketing this in any way as a sort of miracle cure for anything it's certainly not you know it's a potentially a very effective tool for um, weight metabolic health body composition strength those kind of things Uh, I mean I I think actually a lot of people who are into this for uh, fitness purposes could also benefit because it's uh, yeah, you, of course you need a lot of protein uh, but but then you're gonna have to eat uh, if you want to be strong and lean at the same time you have to get that protein without a ton of extra calories and energy right and uh, and then you need to look at the protein percentage of foods not just the protein grams right but th- there are other things that matter too like how how palatable foods are, how energy dense foods are. So I think it can be a, a really effective tool, even for body composition and fitness purposes. If you want to get really strong, really lean, well, then this is a good tool, I think, to uh, to help find the foods that help you get there in the easiest way. Yeah, one of the things because uh, we, we we discussed this, you know, you know, in text back and forth because I was talking about that I have this dried meat that I consume. Now, obviously, I've taken all the water out of that meat, and so it's less satiating for me i can i can i can probably consume the same number of calories in a much smaller volume and therefore probably overeat that and i think that's something that you know you know like you think about how there as you probably are aware there are studies showing that if you just chug a bunch of water it will blunt your appetite for a period of time not mm-hmm. not forever but i mean 30 minutes or something like that and then you you know and, and that may be enough to, to to bypass a craving yeah uh, yeah, I mean, so, there are lots of studies showing yeah. that the energy density of, uh, density of food has uh, an effect on on how much we eat, right? So, if if we dry meat, well, then we remove the uh, fluid from it, and you get more calories per gram, so that uh, so diet per calorie actually uh, goes down a bit. Yeah, I don't think it it affects it all that much because 
we talk about dried meat, you still have a very high protein percentage. Uh, the hedonic scoring, like the addictiveness of it is is relatively low. So I still think it's, uh, you might be able to eat a little bit more than uh, unprocessed, um, just fried meat, but I don't think the difference is all that big, actually. What do you think? You know, it, it's, I know, <laughs> I almost prefer, you know, I, and we mentioned this, the salt, salt does have a role in my mind. You know, when it, when, you, when, when I were, if I were to sit down and eat unsalted steaks, I would consume less of that, I think, for sure. I mean, I, I just don't even prefer, I just don't do it because I don't even like it that much. Um, so I think there, there's that factor. I think that, um, I mean, you know, I, I guess I haven't rigorously tested it in my, in my own self, but I just know that I'll make, I'll take like four or five pounds of some cut of steak, slice it thinly, salt it, de dehydrate it. And then I can just sit there and eat most of the bag in one setting, which would be, but I can, at the same time, I can eat three pounds of steak in one setting too. So it's kind of interesting to see uh, where that is, but uh yeah, I suspect, I, mean, I suspect uh, this, I suspect there is an effect. It may not be, it may not be huge, but there is some effect. And cause I get a lot of people talking about, Hey, I'm having a hard time putting on weight on a carnivore. I like, like a lot of young athletes are like, I want to put on muscle and I just can't eat enough. And I say, yeah, I agree. It's challenging. You have to sort of, and, and that could be one way to hack that is to dry the meat. You're still getting effectively the same amount of calories, um, but in a little smaller volume. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that's interesting what you mentioned about salt, because there are uh, studies showing that you, you get more of a reward value from foods that are high in fat or carbs if you add salt. And of course, the food industry knows this, and, and that's why we have salt in all the ultra processed foods, or not all of it, but but in a lot of it, because it, it drives people to eat a bit more. You, you've probably seen the, the reports saying that one of the biggest things you can do for health, uh, you know, of course, is epidemiologic data is remove salt from your diet or limit salt in your diet. And I wonder if that's due to the fact that it provides for this hyper palatability so that you just overconsume calories, or if it's actually the salt itself. And I don't I don't know how to I know there's people that think salt is great, and we should have more of it. And there's other people that that, you know, think the other way. I don't know if you have any insight into that. That's a very interesting uh, point. I mean, I, I think that uh, there is clearly a, a connection in the data, at least. And uh, but the, then the and then there are also studies showing that eating less salt, people do get less uh, heart disease, etc. Um, but the question is, sort of, is that for people who already have high blood pressure, etc., or is it for if, if your blood pressure is sort of on the low side, if your metabolic health is really good, would it still have a, a negative impact? And I think there the data is much, much less clear. And it's also theoretically much less clear. Maybe, maybe it's, uh, it's not an issue. Yeah, because I, mean, I, I eat effectively zero processed food. And so I have almost no salt on my diet outside of what I add on top of my on top of my steaks. So I mean, maybe in the net is I eat less than the average person who knows. Hmm. Anyways, let's move on. Um, some people are not carnivores they are you know plant-based um and you, you have some interactions with them what do they think about uh what you're doing uh, well i mean or, obviously I mean, they disagree they, I, mean, I, mean, I don't want to yeah, I mean, put them all in one category but there are some people who are active online and yeah what's your experience well i mean again i think online is different from real life for sure i mean i've i've, I've interacted with people in the plant-based community in life in real life and it's always been very pleasant 
and I'm very pleasant to them. And it's very cordial online becomes, you know, anonymity and, and sort of, not, you know, kind of crazy nastiness. Um, obviously they don't agree with what I espouse. I mean, they're like, you know, everything they've been told is that animal products are killing you, giving you heart disease, cancer, it's cruel, it's destroying the planet, all of which I disagree with, obviously. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's one of those things where I don't think the evidence is strong either way, to be honest. I don't think we have just tremendous data, particularly when we start talking about longevity and, you know, prevention of disease 20, 30 years down the road. I just don't think we have good data. I think the data that would suggest one way or the other is weak at best. And this is in line with guys like Gordon Guyatt, who uh, was the guy who actually came up with the term evidence-based medicine. He's had a master's in Canada. Uh, you know, he's been, he's been talking about this for 30 years. He's an expert, one of the world's leading experts on how do you grade the level of evidence, how, how, how strong are the evidence you have. And he basically says that the evidence that would point to meat being deleterious to our health in any ways is at, at best very weak, you know, very weak signal. So, I mean, that's, that's what you have out there. And so I, I'm not going to be the guy saying that go on a carnivore diet, you'll live forever. Cause I don't know. I have no clue. I don't, I don't think there's any evidence that would show that. But at the same time, I don't think the people that are saying go on a plant-based diet because you're going to live forever are, are accurate either. I mean, I just think I think it's unknown and perhaps unknowable, quite honestly. So I think my focus has been on here and now. If I got somebody that's sick and I can get them healthier, which clearly I've I've demonstrated that that does occur, at least in many people, then for me that's as that's as good as you're going to get, in my view. You know, and if you want to live to 150 and be like Dave Asprey or one of these guys that think they're going to take a hundred supplements to make them live forever, you know, go for it. I I'm very skeptical though. And yeah, nobody's lived to 150 yet. That's for sure. Well, I'll tell you a funny story, Andres. When I was in Afghanistan working as a surgeon, we had a patient come in who I thought was about 65 with a broken arm that was fixed in Pakistan. and was all messed up. And we had to redo it. And the Afghan surgeons, we were asking him how old he was, and they said he was 150 years of age. And I said, I don't believe you. <laughs> but apparently the, ev the evidence was he could name some king back from 150 years ago when he was a kid. I said, well, you know, guess what? Abraham Lincoln. You know, <laughs> it was just kind of it was a, it was kind of comical in that regard. But that, that maybe, maybe, there's, maybe there's a hidden <laughs> tribe somewhere that secretly lives to 150. Maybe. Maybe, maybe. Uh, that's uh, a bit of a long shot. But going back to vegans uh, and carnivores, I mean, the way I see it, these are, are both uh, approaches that, that can work. You can uh, improve your health on a carnivore diet. You can also improve your health on a plant-based diet. Seems at least that way to me. I mean, you're in, in both ways, you are likely perhaps to um, avoid ultra-processed foods. Uh, when it comes to the carnivore diet, your protein percentage is going to go up a lot. The plant-based diet, your protein percentage actually could go up too as a percentage, but at the very least, your energy density of the food is going to go down. Fiber is going to go up. You're avoiding uh, hyperpalatable foods. Basically, these these are two different ways to get away from uh, ultra-processed foods, and they can. Well, I mean, what, what do you think about that? Well, I think that I think in general the tendency on a plant-based diet is for, for protein to be lower i mean that i mean you can you can dial it in to where you have higher protein and particularly if you're using like uh you know uh process alt uh, uh, protein isolates you can certainly do that so it's doable uh but the general tendency is to, to be lower in protein now the other thing is it's also very possible on a vegan diet to be very ultra processed i mean in fact we know that plant-based diet folks eat more ultra processed food than meat eaters i mean the studies actually clearly show that 
it is very difficult, if not impossible, to eat a significant amount of your calories ultra processed on a, on a carnivore diet. So I think there is some inherent differences in that because there's all kinds of vegan junk food. There's very little to no, to no car, uh, carnivore junk food. So I think there is that, that distinction. I don't disagree that there can be people that can be healthy on a vegan diet. Um, I, I usually push back on the fact that they're usually accusing us of some ethical compromise or animal abusers and murderers and all that type of stuff. So I kind of push back on that. And also the fact that they will demonize animal foods as the ultimate problem. And I think it clearly is this low nutrient dense ultra processed, I call it human pet food, which I think a lot of us are eating. Yeah. I mean, uh, I would pretty much agree with that. Of course, it's uh, challenging to get to 500 grams of protein on a plant-based diet unless you do I would have a sore uh, gut <laughs> I would have a sore gut for sure <laughs> plant-based uh, protein powder I was eating if maybe. I was eating that in beans I would be I would be in trouble <laughs> so would everybody around me <laughs> uh, that's probably true and and also uh, like you say uh, you can of course eat pretty easily a lot of ultra processed food on a plant-based diet unless you watch out for it and 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 maybe not on a carnivore diet and in a way carnivore diet is kind of foolproof it's almost impossible to fail or is it well what, i mean you, you know i mean what what would you do wrong in that case well i mean i is it possible to still overconsume on a carnivore diet yes it is i mean i know there's people that say it's impossible to eat too much i think when people start bringing in a lot of concentrated fats butters and you know drinking heavy cream and 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 those types of things um then you can then you can potentially start to get into this process where you where you overconsume. Like I generally tell people, don't don't drink your calories. I think that is a I pro you would probably agree with that. Drinking calories, particularly with gosh, sugar sweetened yeah. beverages, are one of the one of the all time worst foods possible. I'm sure it scores a zero on your. Isn't this probably got to be a Coca Cola has got to be a zero on your society score? I would imagine. Well, it's actually eighteen or something like that because 18? it's, it's really? uh, <laughs> we kind of reserve the lowest scores for sort of uh, energy dense fat and and uh, sugar combinations uh, so yeah i mean of course it's gonna pull everybody's average down for the day it's still very very low yeah but uh, arguably like a chocolate bar or a donut uh, could drive even more overeating what do you think interesting well i again i i think they're all bad you know, and I, you know, I think this concept that there are no bad foods is a problem in my view. I think there are bad foods. I really do. I mean, it doesn't mean you can never eat them, but I mean, you realize this is not good for me. And, and moderation, which the current definition is no more than three times a day, I think is what, you know, I don't know what moderation means anymore. I mean, it's like, you know, eat a birthday cake on your birthday and don't eat it on everybody else's birthday because that's 365 <laughs> days a year. Um, uh, you know, I tell you, I, I interviewed a guy who was 770 pounds and he was, he literally was addicted to sugar sweetened beverages. And I mean, he would eat 20 a day. And I mean, that's why that's at 14 years of age, he was 600 pounds, which is in my mind, mind boggling. I've never heard of anybody at that young of age being that big. Uh, but again, carnivore got rid of his sugar addiction, sweeted, you know, the, uh, uh, sugar sweetened beverage addiction and, and has now lost. 350 pounds or something like that. But, um, uh, yeah, I, 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 I have not had one of those, like a Coke or anything like that in really decades. I stopped drinking that stuff in my twenties, quite honestly. I just, I just never, Good never really did that stuff. So, uh, I have to ask also, of course, about the environment. Uh, are we going to 
destroy the planet if uh, everybody goes carnivore? Well, I don't think everybody's going to go carnivore. So, I mean, that's a, that's certainly a hypothetical that I think will never exist. I don't think anybody will do any specific diet. There's always going to be people who have their own preferences. So, I mean, you know, uh, do I think that cows are destroying the planet as per se? I don't. I don't think that's the case. I think that certainly they have an impact, an environmental impact. Literally everything does. I mean, you know, most people don't realize that I use U.S. data because that's what I have more access to. You know, cows produce about 2% of our greenhouse gases here in the United States. Animal agriculture is about 4%. Plant agriculture is 5%. The healthcare sector produces up to 10% of our greenhouse gases. And so, you know, if, if we look at it in a, in a very overall picture, it's like, you know, well, cows produce 2%. They're the largest emitter of any single food group. We need to cut that out. Well, what happens if you do that? Well, you cut out a very, as you know, a very satiating part of the diet. What do people do? They replace it with ultra-processed food. They get more sick. They use more healthcare, you know, energy. And so maybe we just drive that. We, we just shift all that greenhouse gas from cows into the healthcare sector. So ultimately, I don't think that will be a benefit in any way, shape, or form. And in fact, we can, you know, manage livestock in a way that actually is actually restorative. I mean, there's people that are doing that now. How practical is it to do it on a large scale? That's questionable. Certainly, we can do more of it than we're doing now. Uh, the UN has just, at COP28, has just recommended that the developing world actually raise more animal more livestock, interestingly, which is kind of interesting. And, they want, and you know, they're asking the Western countries to cut back, but the developing countries to increase because of their, you know, their, their poor levels of nutrient deficiency. So clearly, it is a uh, considered an essential part of the diet, even even by, even via the FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the UN. So I think uh, this is a obviously a contested, a hotly contested uh, uh, question. Um, I think that, you know, by being so laser focused on one aspect of it, you know, because when we look at greenhouse gas emissions, we look at, we usually look at it per volume of food or per calorie of food, but it's more than that. I mean, we get more than just calories or volume out of, out of animal products. We get nutrients. We get some incredibly important nutrients that we cannot other easily otherwise get in some of these other foods. So, so when you start looking at things like lysine, you know, leucine, uh, zinc, things like this that are critical nutrients for our body, and then compare that to greenhouse gases, we see that the, you know, the cow outputs go way down and the lettuce outputs go way up. And it starts to, you, you know, it's just where you put your, where you put your goalposts and what are you actually measuring? Are we measuring human health, nutrition, and thriving, or are we just measuring how many calories we can get out? Because if you just want to make a lot of calories, you would plant sugar everywhere. Sugar is a very calorically efficient greenhouse gas crop. And so, you know, feed everybody sugar, which we already kind of do. Uh, so is that what we want? We want more of that? I don't, I don't think it's a, it's a, it's a good, good a approach. Complicated question. Uh, of course, it is. Yeah. Uh, controversial. And, and it's an interesting point of view also that, uh, I'm going to look at weight of food or calories of food because, uh, yeah, if you if you grow potatoes or beans and legumes, I'm sure it's pretty low carbon footprint per per calorie. But when you look at vegetables, lettuce or something, I mean, it's not going to look all that great, right? Because there are almost no calories, almost no nutrition in it. I mean, it's all healthy healthy food. I'm not against it in any way, but you don't get all that many calories from that kind of food. Yeah, or or nutrition, or bioavailable nutrition. You know, it's interesting. You know, like back to the 
question, you know, about sugar. You know, it's interesting because we hear about, you know, these cows in Brazil now occupying portions of the Amazon rainforest. And like, well, why are they there in the first place? Well, they got moved out of something called the Cerrado, which was in southern Brazil. Cerrado was the traditional grazing pasture lands. And guess what got planted in the Cerrado? Sugar. <laughs> so they uh-huh. took over the traditional cow, cow pasture with sugar crops, sugar plantations, and the cows went somewhere. So it's 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 it's, it's a very nuanced and complicated discussion. Uh, it's very complicated. Yeah. I guess none of us are are, are the biggest experts on it, uh, at least not me. Let's move on. I had another question because um, uh, this is controversial. Do um, do calories matter? Is it all about uh, what you eat? Um, carbs? Do you have to count your calories? Do well, I would say I would say cal- calories certainly do matter. I mean, you know, like I said, I'm on a carnivore diet. If I want to gain weight, I eat more calories. <laughs> if I want to lose weight, I eat less calories. Uh, I think that clearly has a role. I mean, in, in a pretty big role, quite honestly. But at the same time, uh, if I go from a diet of standard American junk food, donuts, Doritos, and Coca Cola, and eat 2,000 calories a day, and then I go on a 2,000 calorie carnivore diet. I'm going to have some different physiological effects on my body. I mean, one, the protein percentage is higher. So certainly even the, the, the most diehard stringent calorie in calorie out component or proponent will say that when matched for protein, right? Because that is a different macronutrient. So just that alone should indicate that, you know, we know the thermic effect of protein. We know that it induces uh, increased rates of meat, non-exercise activity, thermogenesis. So just the proteins percentage alone, you know, the average American's consuming 15, what, 15%. I'm consuming 30%. Well, you, you looked at my, my stats. I think well, I was actually 40% on that. Particular yeah, day. To 40, I'm, I'm consuming 30 to 40% of my from protein. And I think that, you know, whether or not, you know, as David Ludwig and Gary Towns and some of those others would suggest, particularly David, that do carbs and fat have a differential metabolic effect? David Ludwig would say, sure, it does. Maybe to the tune of a couple hundred calories a day, perhaps, depending on how much you're eating. Um, I think that, um, you know, so calories do matter, but I mean, I can't control how much body heat I produce. I mean, it's not under my voluntarily control. So what controls that? Well, I think food has an impact on that as well. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, you could, you could design a cow, you, I mean, just with protein alone, you could design a, a diet with more calories, but due to the, the, the thermic effect of protein would lead in you know, less energy consumed or less energy available for, for, uh, uh, you know, whatever body energy. So you could, cause I hear people say that they actually ate more calories on carnivore. Maybe they ate 2,500 calories on carnivore versus a 2000 area eating on a standard American diet and they lost weight, which is interesting, you know, and again, it's not rigorously controlled, but no. so I think that, you know, I I'm, I'm the first guy to say that calories do matter, but I'm also the, the first guy to say that, but other things do too. And I think that's a fair, sure. I think that's a pretty fair way to say that. I mean, at, the, at the very least, it's like, okay, calories matter. But, but then the next question becomes, well, well, how do you then uh, eat fewer calories if, if, that's your, if that's what your goal is? And uh, if the answer is just count them and eat, eat fewer, then that seems to be not really working for people. Like it works for some people, right? It, it works for very disciplined bodybuilder, fitness people that this, this can grind it out for a few months. And, um, but does it work yeah. over over a ten year period? Probably not. I mean, maybe in the short term, but I wonder even for for the bodybuilders, they know how to do it, right? They know what kind of foods they are eating. They're not counting calories and going to you know the the, the cheapest burger place and and drinking 
drinking soda, well, right? Yeah, I mean, they're, 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 they're eating protein they're and fiber, basically, is what they eat. Yeah, exactly. The diet is, so, right? yeah. so they make it work by eating very different foods. And th that's my point. I think the, the, the way to be able to eat fewer calories is to eat more satiating foods. Yeah, for sure. It's the way I see it. And, the, and that's what the bodybuilders are doing. Like you said, protein and fiber, right? They know how to I do I mean, it. They're, they're still dealing with hunger when they get down to the very last phases, for of sure. Course. I mean, the last of three course. weeks or four weeks, they're, they're hungry and grouchy. But but they would never get there in the first place if they were eating uh, an donuts, right. No, they're not, they're not getting their own donuts, you know. It's, I mean, it's interesting because you see some, like, very young people uh, and it's interesting how time, I think, I think age impacts this for sure, because you see young athletes that consume a diet that is, uh, you know, and it may be because they have such tremendous outputs. You know, you look at, I, I can see guys, professional athletes, NFL football players that, I mean, their diet is McDonald's, Cokes and French fries and hamburgers, Kentucky fried chicken, and they're ripped. I mean, they are physical specimens, but you, you see them, you know, after retirement or, you know, at, at age 35 and all of a sudden, you know, <laughs> they don't look too good. And that's uh, that's age thirty five. They still have a long way to go there. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, what's your take on if you want to increase your satiety per calorie, or or you know find foods that cause you to eat less? What do you think are the most important factors? Oh goodness. Um, well, I mean, I think that uh, you know find foods that are inherently satisfying. I know that's kind of a circular answer, but for me. You know, I, I do very well with, with gosh, just, you know, a lot of steak. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting on that. I mean, I think, you know, I think the tool that you have is probably going to be helpful. I think you're going to find people that don't fit 100% into that, that what you say is satiating for, for one person may not be. So I think that's, you still have to it. go back and, 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 you know, trust but verify type of thing. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I haven't, I don't, I'm not familiar with all your foods on there. I've seen some of the, some of the things you've been posting and I'm like, you know, if you rigorously test these things and I think, um, hopefully over time as you'll get feedback from people saying, you know, I tried this and for me it didn't work. And then you have to identify what's different about that person. You know, what, what is, you know, maybe there's a, maybe there's some way to say you can, you know, maybe men and women are different. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be the biggest dichotomy I would see that. You know, because interestingly, I mean, cholecystokinin, which you're, which I'm sure you're familiar with, is causes our gallbladder contract, but it also has a satiety hormone. There's studies that show there's actually differences in how that's stimulated between men, women, and children. And so it's like, you know, for me, eating a steak is like, oh, I feel great. Some women will say, you know, they may not have that effect. So it's it's interesting. Maybe maybe that's mediated through CCK. I don't know. Um, it. it Still yeah. a, a lot to learn for sure, yeah, for and this sure. is uh, this is a work in progress. Uh, I think we'll base it, we'll keep basing it primarily on, uh, you know, intervention studies, randomized controlled intervention studies uh, in humans rather than anecdotes as far as we can. But it's of course it's it's always interesting to well, I to mean, explore. you know, the interesting thing, and I think this is because even though it's anecdotal, but when you start having, let's say, you have. 10,000 members. That's a lot of data that you can leverage. You know, that's hard to get in a randomized control trial. And you just, you know, if you can add that to some sort of AI sort of analysis, yeah, yeah. you might be able to sort of dial yeah, it in. It's going to be really, time. really interesting to see what right. we can do with the data. But anyway, it's back to you. I would just like to, um, <clears throat> so if you want to um, lose a few pounds, if you want to get strong but lean, 
leaner, even leaner. You mean per me personally? Yes, you personally. What do you? Yeah, do? I'll increase the protein percentage. I will. I will dial up the protein and dial down the dial down the fat a little bit, and that's what I'll that's what I'll do. And then I'll you know I might have to deal with a little bit of hunger through. There's tricks that I use. Like sometimes I'll make uh, uh, I'll make things that are very volume intense that are very low calorie. Like I'll make my own Jello. I'll, I'll take plain unflavored Jello and make a bowl that big. You know, the biggest bowl as possible put a little bit of like uh, electrolyte flavoring in there so it's palatable and consume that and that will fill me up. I will feel bloated and full and, and, and I don't want to eat for whatever that period of time was. And I was thinking about, I could crush another steak or something like that. So uh, those are some of the tricks, but yeah, I mean, I will dial up my protein to where uh, I might be consuming as much as 50% of my calories from protein, which I, which is an incredibly high amount. Right, it's very uh, high, but, yeah. but generally, generally, I mean, for, for me, and I know there's people that, that will claim that fat is more satiating for them. And, and, you know, to me, honestly, if I overconsume fat, I get kind of nauseous and that that's a, dis, that's a disincentive for me. So, but I don't really like, but so I would prefer getting more protein because I think I, I just have better, as far as body composition and athletic goals, I think protein, at least in my, my physiology allows me to reach my goals better than, than excess fat would. Yeah. I mean, I don't see any, fitness competitors trying to get lean by eating more fat. Have you heard of that? There's, I mean, there are some ketogenic bodybuilders that, that will do that. But I mean, at the end of the day, they're really, they're still eating plenty of protein. And even though they have a high percentage of fat, their caloric intake is overall done down low. And so they, they still go into a caloric deficit. They still eat a lot of protein. But they're maybe on a high fat, higher fat approach. You know, maybe yeah, maybe yeah. higher fat, fat instead of instead of carbs, and perhaps. Well, which, yeah. I mean, like you I know, said, you've got to you've got to. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, you've you've got to maintain. You know, as we know, any 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 weight loss strategy without protein is is doomed to lead to lean mass loss. I mean, I think that's that's pretty clear. Mm. So um, you're going for some new. Uh, World records, I think. What is that? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, uh, I, I, when I turned 50, I set a bunch of rowing world records on the Concept 2, right? So it's a rowing device, all the international Olympic rowers, and there'll be trains on, and there's 30, 40,000 years every year, competitors every year compete on this thing. They hold world championships. And, you know, it, it was initially, it was 50 years, and then it was going to be 60 years, and, and it was a 10-year increment. But recently, they changed it to the five-year increment. And I just happened to notice it the other day. I was, I was looking up, somebody asked me about a record, and I looked, I see how I've got, and I said, oh, wait, now there's a five-year category. So I, I'll be 57 in a couple of weeks. And I'm like, I look I look at a number of those records, and they're all like, I, I to me, they all look like these are all very easy. I mean, not, not super easy, but I think I can get those quite easily. I, I know, you know, my, my goal is by end of January to have four new American records and four new world records uh, on that. So I'll focus on that for the next two months. And, you know, I can probably break a couple of them without training right now. And I'll just train a little bit up and, and hopefully get the rest of them. So you have and without a, carbs, without carbs too, or without, you know, minimal, minimal to no carbs. So minimum amount of carbs. Yeah. You had a very low carb day, clearly. Um, that so, would, that would, uh, Andres, that, that actually was a high carb day for me, quite honestly. I mean, that, because like I don't usually eat that much grams. yogurt. I mean, it's usually, I usually I don't eat it at all, but, uh, so, so usually it's like closer uh, to zero. Carb. Yeah. 30 grams. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, another question, I'm just curious, uh, who do you listen to when it comes to nutrition and health? Uh, who are you a sort of, uh, 
I don't know, role models or uh, the people you learn from? I learn, you know, I learn from a whole vast variety of people. I mean, you know, I think that, uh, I, I mean, I've learned some from you. I've learned some from, from Ted, who's I know is working with you. Um, I listen to guys like Stu Phillips and uh, Don Lehman and, you know, I, I, Lane Norton, you know, I mean, some of these, some of these other people that are critics, critical of Carl, I still listen to them. I, I, I take in what Alan Aragon, I mean, people like that. Um, I think they all have good things to say and their advice is not bad. Um, I think some of them unfairly mis misinterpret what I'm trying to say about carnivore. Uh, but I think there's a lot of, I even listen to some of the vegan people. I, I at least get their perspective on some of this stuff. Who, who, uh, who do you listen to? Who do you think is good uh, uh, there? Oh, <laughs> to listen to. Well, I mean, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I don't know who's, who's really good about this. I mean, I've listened to like Joel Kahn stuff because I've, I've, he's been, he's been very. He and I have had a relatively friendly rivalry, I suppose. Uh, you know, he's he's had some stuff that's interesting. I think. Um, I'm trying to think who else is out there that that I think has put out some some interesting stuff. I think. Uh, There's a uh, doctor who calls herself the skeptical doctor or something like that, anaboric. Ana, I mean, anaboric, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've read her Anaboric. stuff. I mean, I mostly disagree with it, but I, I you know, I, I see because it, for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Twitter or now X presents these people in my feed. I don't, I don't follow them, but I just show up. So I read what they have to say. And sometimes I agree. Sometimes I make fun of it. But I mean, you know, the studies are there. And, you know, again, I think a lot of these studies are unfortunately just, they're underpowered. They're under, I would say underpowered. They're, they're just, they're limited. I mean, you know, like I said, we just can't do good human studies in, in my view to answer the questions that we think we're answering. I mean, we can't, it's not like an animal study where you can just kill everybody at the end, cut them open and see what happened. I mean, that's sort of, that probably won't pass most IRB uh, uh -huh. <laughs> processes. Gonna, so, so yeah, I mean, there's some people I listen, I, I, I at least take note of what they're saying. And, you know, like I said, I'm you, sometimes it's to pick it apart and to say where, where it's limited. But at the same time, like I said, I'm not the guy out here saying keto is the best diet and everybody should do carnivore and LDL doesn't matter. You won't hear that from me or vegetables are poison for everybody. I don't say those things, although I see those things in the carnivore community. And sometimes I kind of shake my head and cringe a little bit when I see that because it's not what I'm trying to represent. Uh, so anyway, hopefully people see well, me as uh, somewhat I'm thankful insane. for that. It's been a, it's been a, a good good talk and i mean you seems to me you're one of the most thoughtful and and balanced people in the carnivore community would you agree <laughs> uh, i try to be i think there's another one amber O'Hearn. i think is wonderful as well i mean she's she's one of the i should mention she's one of the ones i've looked up to as a as a source of interest she's not a physician she's just a you know i mean she's a smart engineer type you know but mm. but uh yeah interesting so Engineers are often, uh, they bring an interesting perspective to things. Uh, so if people want to know more about you uh, or what you're up to, anything else you want to share? How can people find you? What's going on? Yeah, well, obviously, Rivera.com, if you're in the U.S. and you're interested in, uh, you know, sort of lifestyle, nutrition-based healthcare, we're there for that. Uh, we, we've got about 5,000 people on our waiting list right now. So we start seeing patients, I think, the first of the first of the year. Um, I'm on social media. Uh, I'm on X, which formerly Twitter at capital S, capital B, so S Baker MD. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Sean S H A W N Baker 1967. I've got a YouTube channel, Sean Baker MD, and 
those are the, I've got a TikTok one too, which I'm embarrassed to admit, but <laughs> so I'm going to be as well. So anyway, that's where you can find me. Well, that's great. Uh, just to wrap it up, uh, if you can leave uh, people listening with one, one tip, uh, one uh, piece of advice, what would it be? I don't think you should be outsourcing your health to somebody else. Don't put your health in somebody else's hands. I think you have to have, you, you need to be not disempowered, but empowered to realize that you have a huge, huge impact on your, on your health outcomes and your, you know, and basically your quality of life. I mean, because I think a lot of people have sort of, sort of resigned themselves to, there's nothing I can do about it. There's a lot you can do about it. And, you know, it may take a little bit of hard work, but it's, it's certainly worth it in the end. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for taking the time. It was great. I'm sure we'll talk again, Andreas. Thank, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.